0: Hello and welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm Katie Helper.
2: And I'm Mary And uh, happy holidays to everybody. And yes, this is our end of the year show where we're going to be doing a special look at some of the recent news and some of uh, the news of the year.
0: Yeah. Please do become subscribers at Substack. That's usefulidiots.substack.com. You'll get a full extended review from us this week. And uh, it's always a good time and always a great thing to do. You get extended interviews and you get your Thursday throwdown, midweek dose of media madness. So let's get into our first uh, media clip. We have a lot of material for you on this issue, which is not surprisingly Ukraine. What do we got, Aaron? What's our first clip?
2: Yes, President Zelensky uh, rounded out the year with a visit to Washington. And because he is the figurehead for this now more than $100 billion proxy war, because Congress just approved another $45 billion, he was greeted as a uh, as a hero. And so check out how some of the media described Zelensky in starkly similar terms, describing him as a Churchillian figure.
3: Politicians in the press often toss around comparisons to Winston Churchill, but this time, minus the cigar and the whiskey, it
0: fits. President Biden face-to-face with the man who was who has drawn
1: comparisons to Winston Churchill. And in a dramatic wartime appearance, reminiscent of Winston Churchill in World War II. This was historic. Uh, Some people have compared it to when
4: Churchill came.
5: Zelensky is very much acting in the Churchillian tradition.
4: What could be a Churchillian moment. I mean, he is a modern Winston Churchill with an iPhone. Someone who probably is the most courageous and inspirational leader since Winston Churchill.
5: Where Winston Churchill stood generations ago. So, too, President Zelensky stands.
2: So, you're almost saying that Zelensky's got a harder job than Churchill has. That's
6: yes. exactly what I'm saying.
4: This is a historical figure. This guy actually can be compared to Winston Churchill, to Lincoln in 1860.
0: Wow. Truly Churchillian. It's chilling how Churchillian he is.
2: <laughs> uh, my favorite line in there was Winston Churchill with an iPhone. Yeah. Just- really spanning the gamut of you know drawing the historical parallel but also making sure that we understand we're talking about modern times so right yeah he has an iphone yeah
0: Yeah. i like the intro what if he uh, has an
2: android like what if he has an android how does he even know that i know that's a a
0: very dangerous dangerous possibility maybe he hopefully he has enough burners that he has it covered
2: i mean for his own safety too i mean it's probably not in his own personal interest to have an iphone which can be easily traced by the Russian right. uh, spies. So yeah, let's hope he's not using an iPhone. But yeah, look, it, it's like a script Pegasus
0: and the Israelis,
2: right? Yeah, it, it's like a script was passed around and everybody read from it. And uh, the current script right now is because, you know, as you've often talked about, Katie, you know, Putin, of course, is Hitler. Right. So that means that Zelensky has to be Churchill. But, you know, a big thing that was overlooked in all this is like, as everyone was fawning over Zelensky and singing his praises, He actually didn't get what he was asking for. He was asking for a whole bunch of weapon systems that the US is not giving him. The only thing they're giving him is a single Patriot battery, uh, which will only be deployed in the spring because it takes months to train Ukrainian forces on how to use it. So the one thing Zelensky came away with that was new from the US won't be deployed for a long time. And meanwhile, he didn't get a whole bunch of other stuff. And the reason why, if you read the mainstream media accounts, they show that basically the U.S. doesn't want to actually give Zelensky the weapons he wants because they fear that that would actually risk bringing NATO and Russia into direct confrontation. So basically, the U.S. only wants to give Zelensky weapons that will ensure that Zelensky's own people fight right. Russia, not NATO fights Russia. And on the one hand, that's like welcome because it means we're not going to have a World War Three. But it right. also means that as much as we as we praise this guy as a second coming of Churchill, he's sending up to Hitler. We're actually only giving him weapons that ensure that his own people die. And that's it. And so basically, they're the sacrificial lambs for for NATO.
0: Well, it also undermines the Hitlerian narrative, right? Which is that Putin is this existential threat to uh, not just Ukraine, but uh, surround neighboring nations. And if that's true, then you would ratchet up. I mean, again, we don't want that to happen. But if they're not going to negotiate, either this is a world war conflict or it's not. And so they're admitting in some ways that Putin is not the threat that they pretend he is.
2: You know, I'm sorry to be like Ari Melber here, but, you know, the outcast song, Bombs Over Baghdad, the chorus goes, don't pull that thing out unless you came to bang. And the point was like, you know, don't go all in on something unless you're really ready to do it. And that is ultimately, again, I'm happy the US is not right. starting a world war, but it does show exactly that this that this line that, we have to arm Ukraine to stop Hitler is false because if it, if Putin really was Hitler, the U.S. would not be holding back all these weapons. They just wouldn't. Yeah,
0: it's fun. I like the way in the opening um, that guy is like, I think John, I think his name is Silverman. uh, The anchor is like, well, lots of people get compared to, to Churchill, but this time it actually fits minus the cigar <laughs> and the whiskey. It's like we're usually full of shit when we do this, but this time we're actually kind of on to something. <laughs>
2: Well, let's check out. So that's how the media greeted Zelensky. This is how Congress greeted Zelensky. This was, uh, this is a shot of uh, Nancy Pelosi and Zelensky sharing a embrace.
0: Kind of buried the lead there, not just an embrace, it's kiss on the cheek. And for those of you just listening, uh, what you just saw is Zelensky opening up a Ukrainian flag, uh, unfurling it in front of uh, Nancy Pelosi and Kamala Harris, and then Nancy Pelosi and Zelensky hits each other on the cheek. And they're both wearing blue, I should point out. Both Nancy Pelosi and Kamala Harris are wearing blue. One of the two colors of the Ukrainian flag, of course.
2: And, uh, you know, when I saw that scene, I was reminded of the harrowing shot of the QAnon shaman two years ago when he entered the chamber and briefly took over the country. Remember the guy with the big with the big horns? Yeah. Well, this was the Blue Anon Shaman in Zelensky mm. making a making a uh making his own visit and taking over and taking back taking back the house from from the QAnon shaman. That's my joke.
0: Well, Aaron, it's funny that you have this joke about Zelensky because I don't know if you know who Lady Bunny is, but she's a really great performer. She's a really funny drag queen and she has an amazing Instagram account, which I highly recommend for everyone. She's very political. So she actually posted this image of uh, Zelensky. And let's take a look at this. So you see Zelensky, he's wearing a suit jacket and tie. He's in his official office and says, I just earned $10 billion last month working from home. Ask me how. And I posted that because I thought it was pretty funny. And then I got this update, uh, this alert from Instagram. Your post has been removed. It goes against our community guidelines. But I thought that was interesting that I wasn't allowed to post that joke about uh, Vladimir Zelensky working from home and getting uh, $10 billion.
2: Memes are not allowed. Funny memes yeah. are not allowed.
0: Not in wow. this war. All at yeah. war. Yeah.
2: They're really going full hog with these meme enforcement policies. I mean, that's a pr- yeah. I mean, there's no violence in that no, meme.
0: It's not hateful.
2: It's a Zelensky in a suit jacket <laughs> and a and a joke. Wow.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, hey, watch what you say out there, everybody. Watch watch how you meme.
0: Yeah. So hopefully we don't get taken down for our for Aaron's QAnon blue and on joke. <laughs> but if we do, it will have been worth it.
4: <laughs> Afford anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about. How to think, Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything wherever you listen.
2: Well, look, let's hear a different take and go back to Pelosi. This is how Nancy Pelosi, this is how she felt after hearing Zelensky speak.
6: It was one of the finest speeches I've ever heard in the Congress. Uh,
0: it was historic in that uh, he and Churchill are the only two wartime presidents who have come here to talk about asking our help and thanking us for our anticipated help to stop the tyranny in Europe. Tyranny. It's pretty exciting. Um, were, one of our happiest days.
5: Um,
1: there were some applause lines. Was, not it great? That's awesome. Wasn't he wonderful?
0: Oh my God! So she's walking down the halls, and she's very happy. She has a post glow, a post Zelensky glow. And towards the end, she shakes out the flag in like a real enthusiastic way, very celebratory. And then someone claps, and then she says, "Isn't isn't it great?" But you know what I like? It's like yet another Nancy Pelosi PR move, yet another Pelosi memeable moment, right? You have her ripping up the Trump speech. You have her clapping at Trump, which like there was this weird uh analysis of as if it was some kind of subversive feminist thing, which I don't think it was. She was just literally clapping at him. And now we have her shaking out the flag.
2: You know what uh that reminds me of? She reminds me of Lucille Bluth from Arrested yeah. Development. Yeah. And having like like the the, you know, her relationship with her son Buster, you know, very, very uh inappropriate. Uh, <laughs> A very very inappropriate relationship. She and like so basically Pelosi is beaming with pride at like her her young boy who she who, who she gave an awkward kiss to, having gone before Congress to beg for more money for the proxy war and to enrich right. the military industrial complex. And the she 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 has that kind of like pride. Oh, didn't he do great? Wasn't he yeah, wonderful? Exactly. And, and of course she says that people are going to be talking about the speech for a long time. No one's going to remember anything that Pelosi yeah. said. That was just a script written for him that he awkwardly read in his you know stunted English. To basically put on a PR show for this increased proxy war funding just to keep this war going a little bit longer. Right. Because they ultimately okay. know it's not going to make a difference.
0: And what's sad is that she's saying, you know, he came here to ask us for stuff. And as he pointed out, it's stuff that we ultimately are not going to give him.
2: Exactly. They're not giving him even what the Ukrainian military wants because they just want to keep this at a low boil, keep this proxy war simmering, uh, but not have it go out of control into a world war. So. So I guess
0: haven't. he didn't do that great of a job. <laughs>
2: yeah. All right. Well, uh, here's Medea Benjamin uh, of Code Pink with her reaction to how Democrats like Pelosi behaved at Zelensky's speech. This is what Medea Benjamin says.
0: The Democrats used to have a faction that questioned war, but no more. They gave Zelensky 18 standing ovations. They don't question sending more and more weapons. They won't even call for a ceasefire. Sad. Hashtag peace in Ukraine. And Medea Benjamin, by the way, was one of the writers of the book War in Ukraine, making sense of a census war.
2: 18 standing ovations for Zelensky. I think only one Democrat voted against the the bill this time. That was AOC. Uh, but she, ba- she didn't do that based on the money allocated for the Ukraine proxy war. She did that based on uh, funding allocated for border enforcement. So one Democrat voting no. Rashida Tlaib bo- uh, voted present. But otherwise, completely unanimous support for for proxy war funding. Really disappointing.
0: But you know what? It is good to get up that many times. It's very good for the, the glutes, the hamstrings, and the quads, and the core.
2: Yes, it is. But not everyone got up. And Michael Beschloss, who was the presidential historian for MSNBC, wants to find out why. Uh, because he pointed out on Twitter that some members of Congress from the Republican Party did not applaud for Zelensky. And Beschloss has questions. This is what he said.
0: For any members of Congress who refuse to clap for Zelensky, we need to know from them exactly why.
2: Why didn't they clap? Let's have a let's have a hearing. Let's yeah, have, let's a, have hearing. a hearing. Well, let me uh, let me share my joke that I made uh, to Bet in response to Beschloss. This is what I said. So Beschloss said that for any members of Congress who refuse to clap for Zelensky, we need to know from them exactly why. So I said, every member of Congress also needs to answer whether they would get the clap for Zelensky. And if not, Oh, why? wow.
0: Yeah. Aaron, you really ratcheted it up. Wow, you went there.
2: <laughs> so if you're a member of Congress and you would not contract gonorrhea from Zelensky, if that's what he asked you to do, if that's what he needed of you, you have to explain that's, why. Yeah. Listen, if that's what Ukraine needs, if Zelensky needs you to get gonorrhea, then why wouldn't you do that? And if right. you have to explain why.
0: I like that. Usually wartime posters of your used to have, you know, advertisements against getting uh, what they would call VD, venereal diseases, which we now call STIs, but Aaron's flipping it upside because we live in a topsy-turvy world. <laughs> and it's your duty to get the clap, not run from it.
2: If that's what Zelensky wants. If that's what he is Zelensky. Churchill after all. All right, let's go on to Lindsey Graham, the friend Republican Senator, friend of the show from South Carolina. This was his reaction to Zelensky's visit.
4: Somebody's gonna win and somebody's gonna lose. How does this war end? When Russia breaks and they take Putin out, anything short of that, the war is going to continue. To ask the Ukrainians to give Russia part of their country after all this death and destruction is not going to happen. To signal a ceasefire, Russia will take the opportunity to to rearm and come at them again. So we're in it to win it. And the only way you're going to win it is to break the Russian military and have somebody in Russia take Putin out. To give the Russian people a new lease on life.
0: So this is just, he is calling all out, calling for regime change.
2: If you're in it to win it, you have to support regime change in the world's other top nuclear power. That's just, that's just what it is.
0: That's insane. He's just saying the quiet part out loud.
2: Well, speaking of saying the quiet part out loud, this one is, I think, to me, the most incredible. This is, first of all, the fact that this man is on television really just speaks, it says a lot about our current culture. And this man is all over North. He is a veteran of the Reagan administration, where he was convicted uh, for multiple felonies related to his role in uh, gun running, uh, where basically the Reagan administration, after Congress tried to curb its dirty war in Nicaragua. The Reagan administration went around that by basically selling weapons to Iran and using the proceeds from that uh, to pay for the weapons going to uh, the Contras in Nicaragua and to try to overthrow Nicaragua's Sandinista government. So Oliver North, convicted as part of that key figure, he's somehow still, in some circles, treated as a credible voice. And so this is what he said about Ukraine proxy war and how it compares to the dirty wars that he himself took part in back in the 1980s.
4: Is that money well spent? The president's assuring us that he's going to deal with it responsibly, but $110 billion, uh, American people aren't seeing that kind of money. It's coming out of their pockets. Well, it's coming out of all of our pockets, but it's money well spent. My humble opinion, this is very much like what Ronald Reagan did back in the 80s, and I do have some experience with that. I know that makes me a lot older than most of our viewers, But in fact, he he believed in supporting freedom fighters. He did it in Latin America. He did it in Angola, Guinea-Bissau, Mozambique. He did it in Afghanistan. Those people were willing, as the Ukrainian people are, to use their blood and our bullets. And by the way, most of that 110 billion total between the 45, the 1.7, and the previous 65, over over 110 billion, is spent here in the United States. It's provided to contractors and defense logisticians and the kinds of people who build the kinds of systems that we're getting. So most of that money is spent here in America. Good, hard-working Americans have the jobs. And when you look at that kind of an investment, what would be the difference if when the giant does awake, and that's all about communist China, it's just not a plug for this book, the idea of it is to make sure that they get the right message and to make sure that Putin gets the right message. No more invasions. And that means the people in Taiwan are gonna need the same kinds of weapon systems that we're now providing to the Ukrainians. And we better get hot at it because the communist Chinese aren't backing down, but they're watching very carefully what we're doing. And so, Jason, in my humble opinion, this is money well spent.
2: That clip just gets progressively crazier.
0: And to see the full 2022 year in review, make sure that you go to usefulidiots.substack.com.
2: And it's been a great time all year on Useful Idiots. And we're very grateful to everybody who tunes in every week and supports us. We really appreciate that we're part of your media diet because there's a lot of choice out there. So thank you for, uh, for including us. And uh, it's a great pleasure to do the show and try to, you know, we bring serious issues. We do serious interviews. We also try to have some fun too. Yeah, And we hope you enjoy watching it as much as we enjoy making it.
0: We don't have a guest for you this week, but what we do have is we are unlocking a really great interview with two absolute rock stars, Claire Daly and Mick Wallace. They're Irish members of the European parliament. So here are Claire and Mick.
2: Mick Wallace and Claire Daly. Thank you for joining us.
1: No Butter. Thanks for having us.
2: So Claire, you were just added to a list, uh, put out by the ukrainian government of supposed russian propagandists and they cite you in particular for two things claiming that sanctions against russia are making innocent people suffer and that this whole ukraine conflict is really a proxy war between nato and russia i'm wondering your response to being included in this list
1: yeah, I mean, look, it obviously makes a bit disappointed he's not in it. Uh, say, we can't. Yeah. Uh, we were thinking that uh, Ukrainian intelligence must be uh, pretty weak, actually. But um, yeah, I mean, look, the comments you read out are in our views that loads of people hold in Ireland, across Europe, across the world. And their views which I believe to be true, uh, but they certainly aren't Russian propaganda in that regard. And I suppose while it's disappointing, it's not surprising that this is now an attempt by the Zelensky government to silence and censor opposition abroad, having been on a binge of doing that internally, you know, silence and uh, shutting down opposition political parties, media outlets, moving against workers, against its own bureaucracy and so on. So now they're obviously going on to the international stage. So I think, I mean, it's a Compliment really that they've noticed uh, what I've been saying. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. So uh yeah, it's a bit of a, a mad one, really.
0: Mick, how much of an inferiority complex has this given you not being included?
6: Well, yeah, probably you probably won't be surprised to hear I've actually I've actually I've had to deal with my inferiority complex most of my life, so I'm well used to it. So nothing new there.
1: Uh,
0: were you surprised by being included on the list, Claire, or do you think that this is something that you've grown to expect?
1: No, I I am surprised. I mean, when I see the list, there's some people who are so blatantly not on it. And then, you know, that there are people on it who really, there are MEPs on it, for example, who have a much lower profile and haven't raised the issue at all, if you like, compared to what Mick has. But uh, yeah, it's a bit surprising. I suppose the biggest surprise is the list at all. I mean, what is this about? Like, what's the penalty for being on the blacklist? What's going to happen to you? Like, you know, I mean, I wasn't planning on going on holidays to Ukraine or anything. I'd have to beat back the litany of Western politicians who seem to be going there to get their pictures taken at the moment. But I mean, is that the penalty? Are we being put out there as legitimate targets to be silenced? Because it doesn't actually say, I know some people in my office are freaking out a bit about that, like, but... uh, the whole idea of the list is is reprehensible, really. I, and I think, you know, people across Europe and that have to ask, this is a, a government that we're saying is a beacon of democracy and uh, human rights compliant and all the rest of it. But this is behavior which actually the West rightly criticized Russia for and Ukraine seems to be just kind of aping it, really. So it's the list itself that's a surprise. But, yeah, I mean, I suppose in some ways it's... Uh, good to know that what we're saying is is getting an audience and is is having a reach
2: so mick help us understand what's going on in europe right now nato states have joined the u.s in this proxy war against russia sanctioning russia sending weapons to ukraine no serious push right now for diplomacy and now europe is facing the impact Uh, just now there was this announcement that nations are going to cut their natural gas consumption by 15 percent or try to cut their consumption by 15 percent because they're so dependent on russian energy and as an outsider it looks like europe is essentially sabotaging its own well-being for the sake of a us-led proxy war so as someone who's there who's in the european parliament what is the attitude among leaders toward this proxy war and is there any appetite right now or drive to end this war well sadly um there isn't an appetite
6: for ending the war. There's been an appetite for fueling it uh, since it started uh, over five months ago now. And uh, it's obviously very disappointing for us. Um, The European leaders, uh, if you could call them that, um, have behaved in a very subservient manner uh, to the US NATO agenda. And that's very worrying for us because it's not something that is in the interest of the ordinary people of Europe because we, we've said from the start that the sanctions would be self-destructive and they were going to have a bigger impact on the people of Europe than they were going to have on the Kremlin or Putin, that they weren't going to stop the war. And as it turns out, uh, well, yes, and some of the sanctions, I'd say, are definitely going to have a huge impact on the Russian economy. Uh, but... Right now, the sanctions are uh, more immediately are going to have a massive impact on the standard of living of the majority of European citizens. Now, the idea that we would fuel a war in Ukraine, that we would pump more and more weapons in there to make sure the war didn't stop and that uh, it would go on and on and on at a cost to ourselves, isn't actually something that the ordinary people of Europe agree with. And there was a very interesting survey down there about three weeks ago by the European Council for Foreign Relations, which is a European body. And they found that over two to one of the Europeans that were surveyed in 10 of the EU countries, over two to one favored peace rather than punishing Russia. But sadly, the politicians are in a different place. And sadly as well, the mainstream media is in a different place, and the mainstream media and the politicians have behaved as if they were almost working for NATO, and that's really sad for us because uh, we want, uh, we like the idea of the European project uh, of the European Union working in the interest of all its citizens, but sadly, that's not really what's happening at the moment. Now, it wasn't really we wouldn't. We wouldn't say it was happening before the war either, because gradually over the last 20 years, different treaties have turned the EU project into a, a neoliberal project. And it's, the neoliberalism now is very much enshrined in the treaties of the EU. So we were serving big, the interest of big business before those of the ordinary people. And we came to the European Union in an effort to try and change that and reverse that trend. But obviously this war has escalated problems Uh, but what we're going to see now is that there's going to be a bit of unrest among the people of europe when it hits their pocket when it hits their living standards and they're kind of wondering well what is this for and it's pretty obvious that the eu has made no attempt at diplomacy no attempt at getting people around the negotiation table and to just dismiss it all and say oh you can't talk to putin so he's a madman Well, listen I mean, we're not defending Putin. We've never said a good word about him in our lives. Uh, he's a right-wing neoliberal nationalist, and uh, he doesn't behave in a manner that we think a leader should behave in a country. But uh, we don't see a whole lot of leaders we like anywhere on the planet right now at the moment. And he's, he's another one that we criticize. But the idea that you cannot have dialogue or diplomacy because you don't like the leader. I mean, what goddamn leader have we liked on any side of any war uh, in the last 70 years, tell me?
0: What about the effect that this is going to have on climate?
6: Well, uh, I was, I'm, I'm on the Environment Committee in the Parliament as well. And um, it's pretty obvious that uh, there's been a, a serious rollback on environmental commitments. Uh, we're looking at a situation now where the, the Germans are going to start digging up coal again. We're probably going to look at trying to import more liquid, uh, liquefied Uh, LNG from uh, the Americans, which is probably the most filthy gas uh, on the planet because it's uh, processed through fracking, uh, which destroys uh, living conditions for a lot of the people that live in the area where it's fracked. And then there's huge uh, methane emissions from the boats coming across the Atlantic as well to Europe. Obviously, they're saying, oh, we've we've got to lean ourselves off Russian gas and Russian oil. But at the same time, they're literally just going to jump into bed with some other uh, rogue supplier. I mean, we're we're actually looking. Ireland, for example, is going to buy uh, oil and get our gas. Uh, sorry, uh, the, the lot number buying gas from Israel. Now, Israel can't refine gas, but there's a deal being done where the Egyptians are going to refine it. So we're going to take it from uh, Israel via Egypt. Now, I mean, we don't defend. Uh, the the Russian uh, government, and by God, uh, good luck to anyone that tries to defend the Israeli one. Now, uh, we're also happy enough uh, to sit down and have buns and tea with the Saudis uh, on a regular basis and buy and sell stuff off them on a regular basis, despite it doesn't seem to matter how many heads they chop off in a month. Or it doesn't matter how many people, I mean, the UN report only last December showed that almost 400,000 were dead in Yemen. And 15.8 million have been uh, pushed into extreme poverty. Uh, it's literally almost a genocide that the Saudis UAE are carrying out. And they couldn't do it without the support of the Americans and the European member states. So we're actually, we're prepared. We have no problem doing business with the Saudis who are creating terrible human rights abuses in Yemen. Uh, we have no problem dealing with the Israelis who are continue to commit uh, terrible human rights abuses against the Palestinians and uh, but now we've all of a sudden we have a problem with Russia.
1: I think that's a key question Katie because I mean we're in Europe now and Europe is in the midst of an absolutely massive heat wave, drought, major rivers are drying up, there's going to be a huge agricultural problems, and now the leadership across the EU is going back to digging up coal, as Mick says. This is going to be catastrophic, and when you add it on to the, the price that we're paying uh, for energy, the reduction, the Europe is on the verge of a, of a major, real catastrophe if this keeps going.
0: What's your response to the way that um, so many politicians and so many uh, industry spokespeople like to pretend that you can either save you can work on climate change or you can help people in their pocketbooks. Um, like you can help people pay the bills or you can help the planet. How, how can those two things be reconciled?
6: Unfortunately, too many of the politicians, and look at the truth be told, I mean, I, I don't think the public need to be told that politicians tend to disappoint. And, uh, unfortunately, we would argue that uh, the wrong people get involved in politics and uh, an awful lot of the people that do uh, seem to sell, the, sell their souls uh, to vested interests very quickly and to corporate power. And uh, unfortunately, you would think the way that some of the politicians go on about, oh, listen, you know, we, yeah, you're right, we need to do this for the environment, but not yet. And Oh, yeah, we need to do this for the environment, but not at the cost of this or not at the cost of that. And that they're not really taken on board that we actually have an emergency. We have a climate emergency. We are in serious trouble. And we haven't done enough about it in the past, despite the warnings. We we have probably things have never looked as bad for the environment as they do right now. And yet. And yet our leaders are not prepared to do the right thing because they're they're still protecting big financial interests rather than doing the right thing. The right thing is the cheapest thing to do in the long term for everybody. But they're too goddamn stupid to see beyond the pints of their nose a lot of the time. But postponing doing the right thing on the environment is going to make it so much harder Every goddamn day that we postpone it, and um, we are being very, very unfair uh, to generation to the next generation, or, or and the one after, it if, it, if it gets there. But uh, it, it's really, it's actually sad. And the leaders so many of the leaders today are coming across almost as climate change deniers. They they pretend that they're not, but they're behaving as if they are.
1: I think this idea is a bit of a fig leaf as well, like this either or, like it's actually a a lie being put out by big industry and big agri and all of the actual Um, structures or institutions that are responsible for climate change in the first place. I mean, obviously we're all responsible for our own footprint, but the footprint of ordinary people is nothing compared to that of of big business. And they're the ones who put out this idea because they're just really trying to protect their own profits. And and that's what we see. And I mean, it's shocking when you look at the European Union now on the verge of with serious climate problems in Europe. And for the first time now we're spending huge amounts of money directly on arms and not just arms but arms into a conflict as well which is just the last thing it should be doing uh,
6: it's, it's, people should realize that of all the measures that have been introduced on climate since they began i don't know how many but 40 years ago not once have the military footprint been taken into consideration not once by any entity not by the un not by the EU, not by any member state government, not by the Americans, not by anybody. Why? What's the most important? How, how bad?
2: On the war in Ukraine, I wanted to ask you for your response to Jan Stoltenberg, the head of NATO. He recently spoke, I believe he was speaking before your, the body you serve in the European Parliament. And he said that people who are warning about the adverse impacts of this proxy war need to stop complaining.
3: So, so of course, yes, it has a price, but but, but not to act and just let that brutality continue and let that brutality of Russia be awarded is, for me, a higher price. Second, it is in our interest to help Ukraine. Because you have to understand that if Ukraine loses this, that's a danger for us that will make Europe even more vulnerable for Russian uh, aggression. Because then the lesson learned from Georgia in 2008, from annexing Crimea in 2014, from starting to undermine Donbas in 2014, and then the full-fledged brutal invasion by President Putin in February, is that they can just use force. They get their will. It's to re-establish an idea of spheres of influence where big powers can decide what smaller neighbours can do. And that will make all of us more vulnerable. So even if you don't care about the moral aspect of this, supporting the people of Ukraine, you should care about your own security interest. So therefore you have to pay. Pay for the support, pay for the humanitarian aid, pay the consequences of, of the economic sanctions, because the alternative is to pay a much higher price later on. And then remember one thing, yes, we pay a price, but the price we pay as the European Union, as NATO, is the price you can measure in currency, in money. The price they pay is measured in lives, lost every day. So we should just stop complaining and step up and provide support,
6: full stop.
1: There was a clap
6: on for uh, God almighty. I, I was at that meeting. Uh, That was the Foreign Affairs Committee, right? And, uh, I mean, it was kind of fantasy stuff. And, I mean, I I got over two minutes to ask him questions as well. He wouldn't answer my questions properly. And uh, you should look at his response because uh, it's pathetic. Do you not think that we can actually have our values, our model, and they can have theirs? China is a very established culture. And they might not do things like we do them, and we don't do things like they do them. I mean... Uh, do you not see a prospect where we actually c- can live in peace? Uh, or do you actually foresee a possible war in the, in the next few years between the US and China? Thank you very much.
3: Um, then, Mike Wallace, uh, China. Well, and then... as yeah, so, China China's defensive. Well, also why do they then invest so heavily in new long-range nuclear weapons? And more and more. And why do they actually deploy all these new submarines and why do they behave the way they behave, for instance, in the South, uh, in, in the South China Sea? And then, well, of course, I respect that China is a different country than, than, than Europe or Norway or um, the other countries in this room. But for me, some human right values are universal. The freedom of speech. It's not something we just have in the Western part of the world, it's something we believe that every human being has the right to do. So when they crack down on free press, arrest uh, journalists, writers, those who disagree, that's fundamentally violating values we all believe in.
6: He's trying to make out that it's in the European interest to actually fight Russia down to the last Ukrainian. Now, it's actually pretty unfair on the Ukrainians, because they're the ones dying, and the Russians dying as well. but it's actually not in our interest uh, for this war to continue. It's in our interest uh, to make for peace. And he's talking about as if NATO were a force for good. I mean, listen, NATO is not a defensive organization. I, I'd like people to tell me, when were NATO, when did NATO ever had anything to do with peace? And when did it ever have anything to do with defense? is the bomb Belgrade back to the Stone Age. They were involved in Afghanistan for 20 years where millions have been displaced and hundreds of thousands killed. And there's millions starving there at the moment, thanks to NATO and the US and the member states in Europe that support them. They were involved in Iraq. Now, Libya, Libya is a basket case. The slave trade operates in Libya today. All the countries in the sub-Saharan Africa, in the Sahel are in turmoil because of the overspill from Libya. And NATO the Back to the Stone Age. NATO doesn't do anything positive. NATO NATO promotes the US military agenda, it promotes the US military industrial complex. That's NATO's raison d'etre. And when another question that was put to him, apart from the Ukraine one uh, at that meeting, I put it to him that at the summit in Madrid, that they, for the first time, they went gung-ho for China at the NATO summit. And they said that China now was a threat to our security in Europe. Now, there's no evidence to that effect, zero. And I asked him for the evidence. And he more, his, his response was mostly to the effect that, and I, I put it to him, that the Americans were spending more money on arms than the next nine countries put together. And that included China and Russia. I put it to him that the Chinese hadn't dropped the bomb on anyone in 40 years. And there's not a day gone by in the last 40 years, but the Americans have dropped the bomb and so on. And I asked him, tell me, where's the evidence that China is a threat to us? They're our biggest trading partner. What do we want to be falling out with them for? They're not going to invade us. They want to do business with us. We want to do business with them. Why wouldn't we be falling out with them? I said, tell me why, I said. But of course, he went off then. In his reply, his response was all about we have our values and they don't have our values. And I said, don't, well, hold on a minute now, why don't we let them have their values and we'll have ours and, and let's live in peace. I said, isn't that not a logical uh, position? Why, wh- why are we the only ones with real values? Because what this is, this is an extension or it's not really an extension because colonialism never stopped. The Europeans still think in a colonial mindset. And if I told the Americans, Right? And they think that they're the civilized ones and anyone who doesn't agree with them and, and, and bow to their uh, agenda, bow to, to, to the U.S. Uh, imperialism, they think, oh, they're not civilized. or oh, we need to educate them. or oh, we need to sort them. We educate them with fucking bombs. Yeah. Same as uh, the likes of Syria and Iran. Uh, oh, they had to be taught manners because they wouldn't accept the U.S. mantra. So they're the ones who don't understand. I mean, the idea that the Chinese uh, are not entitled to a culture of their o- of their own—they were sophisticated when we were still swinging our trees. They were, mm. and the same about the Iranians and the Syrians. These are some of the oldest cultures on earth, and we think that we have—we're the only ones uh, with the truth. It's absolute bollocks.
1: It is. I mean, the arrogance is striking. And I mean, you could hear it in the clip. Your man had his little fans there, some of the MEPs, particularly the ones from the Baltic states and the Poles, can't get enough of uh, NATO. They really lap it up like, you know, and there's quite an actual anti-Russian element in that. But there's so much in what he says. I mean, he says, do we want to let that brutality continue? Well, there's brutality, as Mick says, going on all over the world, and not only are they not stopping it, but they're actually involved in it. And of course we don't. But the only way of dealing with the brutality is stopping the war. And that's the last thing that this lad wants. And it's obvious because he then goes on and says, oh, do we want Russia to be rewarded? And that's the issue, really. Because what they want is to fight a war with Russia. And you can see it, they hide it up, as Mick says, they talk about values and all this nonsense. But it actually dresses up the fact that the European Union is totally captured by the military-industrial complex. This is all about arms, it's all about having an enemy that can keep the war going and if they're not happy with you know see how this one goes on there's another one on the burner now let's pick at China and uh, stoke up the Taiwan thing and if we're not getting enough sales here in Ukraine and that's not going on sure we can always pop up and since we really isn't it I mean since we went to the, we were in the Irish parliament for years and um, we were saying the same things in the Irish parliament as they were saying the European ones we didn't get half as much grief as as we're getting um, now but since we got here The anti-Chinese and anti-Russian rhetoric has been there right from the start uh, and it's been totally ratcheted up now and unfortunately Putin's invasion has given them a certain legitimacy to that idea but like we were having fights with them all the time they'd say it's okay for you, you're on the other side of Europe, sitting there on your little island now, no one annoying you, you don't know what it was like to be occupied by Russia, you know. Bit of a stupid move on their part, saying that this was the Baltic states, because actually, while we weren't occupied by Russia, we were a country that was colonized and occupied for generations by a big neighbor. So actually, we know more than most European nations do. We're a kind of in an unusual spot where we're a Western, very much, I suppose, a country that's sort of rooted in Western Europe but we have an anti-colonial past. We were colonised ourselves. It's an unusual mix, actually, and Ireland could be playing a really good role in exposing a lot of what's going on here, but unfortunately, our government has gone in, so we get this mantra at home, oh, it's our security that's at stake. But they weren't saying that in Ireland, that we should rearm the IRA again in case the Brits come back. Uh, They certainly aren't saying that. What they're saying is we needed a peace agreement, and we had a peace agreement, and... The US, in fairness at the time, played a good role in delivering peace in Ireland. We had to sit down and live with people who carried out appalling atrocities uh, in our history. And everyone's the better for it. And that's kind of what has to be done here. So why do we have to pay? That's the only thing that people deserve is, is peace. And if, if, you know, the longer the war is going on, that's the only way of the brutality continuing. Yeah, I
6: mean, Claire's point about... You know, there was no initiative to rearm the IRA. And it would have been ludicrous if we had. It would been ludicrous for anyone to suggest it. But there was boxes of guns opened in Kiev, and you didn't have to sign for the gun. Mm-hmm. Now, listen, we're very, we defend the Palestinians morning, noon, and night. But under no circumstances would we recommend boxes of guns put into the West Bank or Gaza for people to, to just uh, to pick them out of the box and not even sign for them. I mean, putting them in there in the first place would be just crazy. Well, what's going to happen to all the guns that are in Ukraine? And imagine, uh, are they going to stay within Ukraine forever? I, I have my doubts. And Europe, it will reap what it's sown. And I worry a lot about that too.
2: And especially because in the case of Ukraine, they're are peace settlements on the table that could have avoided this whole thing, okay. the Minsk Accords, but there's been no, I mean, which was reached in 2015, which would have basically ended the war in the Donbass, given the breakaway republic some limited autonomy, but keep Ukraine's borders intact. But it seems to me that there was no appetite, certainly in Kiev to implement these accords. And there wasn't enough pressure from Europe to, to withstand the US government, which also had no interest in making peace as well. And now we're in the situation we're in, but people are forgetting that there were alternatives to avoid this war before it began, the invasion before it began. And the basic formula there of recognizing some form of autonomy for those breakaway republics is the key to ending this war. But there just seems to be no interest in even talking about that.
6: Obviously, I mean, the Europeans were keen for the Minsk uh, Minsk II agreement to be implemented. At one stage, the Ukrainians were interested in it. Everybody was interested in it at one stage, but the ones who changed their mind first were probably the Americans, and uh, then obviously um, the, the likes of the Azov Battalion uh, weren't wearing it either, and uh, they had a big issue with it, and uh, I don't think Zelensky was going to get away with going down that path. The fact that the Europeans didn't push for it, that the the fact that the Europeans didn't do more to prevent the outbreak of the war is obviously very disappointing for us. Now, okay, we accept that Russia had a security concern with the idea of NATO becoming part of Ukraine. We accept that the expansion eastwards was not good for peace and stability in the region. But not for a second. When you say that, you're giving some context of what happened. But that's not excusing what Russia did. Because there's no issue. Russia, Putin was 100% wrong, as far as we are concerned, to invade a sovereign country. And we would always argue there's an alternative to war. There's other ways of solving difficulties. And we think Putin was wrong to invade. Completely wrong. It was illegal, immoral, and it's horrific now what's happening. But And to say that we understand that the events leading up to it over the last 10 years have contributed to the outbreak of the war is not apologizing for Russia's behavior. No more than if anyone, I'm sure you're familiar with the Treaty of Versailles in 1919 after the First World War. Well, the, the Treaty of Versailles sowed the seeds of the Second World War. But that doesn't excuse what Hitler did. Uh, by starting the war in uh, 1939 and uh, the Americans were the, uh, and the Saudis began uh, arming the Mujahideen and funding them as far back as 1981 and they gave j- the jihadists oxygen, guns and money before anyone knew about them. But it actually doesn't excuse what the jihadists did in September 11. Absolutely not. That was criminal. But I mean... People don't like things being put in context, but if we don't put them in context, it's very hard to understand how we got to where we are.
1: Mm, I mean, I think, like, obviously, I mean, Zelensky is absolutely losing the plot. I mean, posing for Vogue now at the moment, taking time out from his busy war schedule for a photo shoot for for Vogue is just absolutely unbelievable. But in any case, his internal repression and stifling of of dissent, uh, that tour around the world of drumming up a call for arms and new arms to be bought from the west seems just bizarre but originally i think he probably did try and i think makes right the elements that stopped him were the united states and the Azov battalion so problems at home and internationally and i suppose the big question out of that then is well, you'd be thinking now that somebody in Europe would have a few brain cells to go, God lads, if this goes pear-shaped now, we're the ones who are going to pay the price for this, not our like-minded partners in the US who are sitting over on the other side of the Atlantic, not a bother on them. Uh, but, and I suppose we're a bit thinking like, what is going on in Europe? Like that the minds didn't factor this in. Uh, they obviously didn't think the war would happen. We didn't, I don't think Zelensky did. It was, as makes says, a step too far by Russia. But,
6: yeah, yeah. And another point that we'd like to make, I mean, both of us are very much of the view that if Merkel had stayed in power in Germany, the war would have been less likely. Mm-hmm what you had Germany runs the European Union in the interest of Germany and then in the interest of everybody else France is the second biggest player right but it's it's a, EU is run for the benefit of Germany more than anything else but the Germans have been very good at orchestrating everything Merkel uh while we wouldn't have liked our politics uh uh she was very strong and she was in control and she also she was able to handle Putin uh, she was able to handle all the different pressures coming around that and around energy and the whole lot of it. And uh, she was also, uh, she wasn't afraid of the Americans either, right? She wasn't afraid of NATO, despite the fact that she, she, she was part of the whole thing. But she was her own. She, Germany came first and Europe second, right? It was, she wasn't putting the US or NATO ahead of Germany or of Europe, right? But what you got then was you got a German government led by Schulz with the Greens actually the most Uh, pro-NATO. It's a three-party government, right? And it's it's incredibly weak. And while Schulz and Macron tried in some way, but not strongly enough, but at least both of them actually tried, Schulz and uh, Macron uh, went to Moscow, they went to Kiev, they made some effort to uh, avoid the war starting but it wasn't enough. And we would definitely think that uh, there was a, a more than likely, we, obviously we can't say it for sure, but it would have been helpful if Merkel was still in control.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good point because, you know, She was a representative really of German capitalism and we're on the cusp now of an enormous crisis in Germany and across Europe. I mean, if the gas gets turned down or uh, off, uh, you're talking about potentially millions of people in Europe losing their jobs, a catastrophic recession beyond anything we've ever seen probably since World War II and the idea that the leadership of the economies of Europe are not stepping in to do something about this is kind of astounding. Now you see a lot of splits because a number of the former, um, as Mick says, the, the old colonial powers, Germany, Italy, France, tried to talk for a bit of you know a reasonable accommodation and so on. I think the pressure will be absolutely enormous on them to get back to that place and to get some form of, res- of resolution now. Some of the former European, Eastern European states, and um, the likes of Bulgaria, Slovakia, these countries that are more pro-Russian will be under huge pressure as well from their populations. And then you have you know, the likes of, I suppose, the Baltic states and Poland would be very anti-Russian, but there's a lot of different forces at play, I think.
6: Yeah, and I think it's important to say that up to up to six months ago, while uh, those Eastern European states were vocal, they didn't really have the clout uh, to make the big calls in Europe. And the European Parliament, as you know, the European Union is divided as three institutions. You've got the Parliament, you have the Council and you have Commission. there's a a serious deficit in democracy. Anyway, the parliament is the only one where the people are directly elected. And we cannot initiate legislation. The commission does that, which is unelected. And the more powerful of the three is the council, which is made up of the ministers from the member states, and their meetings are held in secret, which really shouldn't be part of any democracy. But what we would have seen traditionally for a number of years is that when the big calls were made in the European Union, big business, like especially German business, were making the big calls when necessary. And one of the real surprises in the last five months is that they went silent despite the fact that they knew that this was self-destructive. Mm-hmm. That was really surprising. And a part of that was the role played by mainstream media. Mainstream media, is behaving like as if it's been run by the National Endowment for Democracy. It's behaving like it's actually taken money from uh, this US NATO uh, entity. Uh, The manner in which they have made a black and white story out of all of this actually intimidated industry from actually standing up and saying what needed to be said now, whether that's going if, I can't see how they can continue to stay silent though, because they're going to be laying off hundreds of thousands of workers very soon if uh, common sense doesn't prevail in Europe.
0: Why do you think that is that the media is playing
1: that role? Well, I think in, in one way, Mick touched on it. Like, I mean, we have, there's documented evidence of a huge amount of US money, if you like, uh, funding a lot of uh, media across uh, Europe there's the existence of all of these so-called independent, not, uh, think tanks and NGOs that are supposedly the, I suppose, guardians of of independent thought, but they're actually just puppets, really, of US imperialism, Um, and what we saw then was when the war started, nearly on message, the same lines were being put out all across Europe. I know, obviously we got dogs abuse in Ireland, we were a disgrace and an embarrassment for, you know, not standing with Ukraine and all this. But then we noticed that our colleagues in other countries were getting the same stuff. Uh, And on message, first of all, it was out, they need arms, they need arms. But as Mick said earlier, when did you ever hear them calling to arm the Palestinians or the Afghans or the Iraqis or whatever, it would never happen In a conflict, the response of an international community should be to de-escalate, uh, not uh, carry on the conflict. But that was the first message. Then the second message was, oh, no, no, there can't be talks. You can't deal with a madman. Putin's a madman and all of this. So for me, it's like, I mean, obviously propaganda and the role of this, all this talk about disinformation and fake news, this is where the money is now. We saw at first, I suppose, with the overthrow of, of the government in Guatemala in the 50s was the start of the role of PR in framing public opinion. But now it's on total steroids. And this war is being conducted on an emotive basis by uh, a media that is, I suppose, bought and, uh, and paid for. Um, by the interests of, of big business. And, and I, I think US imperialism, and we often joke in the committees that they're always going on about uh, Russian propaganda and Chinese propaganda and all this. And we go, yeah, sure, of course they do what Everybody does it. The difference is they're brutal at it, like, you know, whereas the US and the EU are actually pretty damn good at it, like, you know. And, uh, yeah,
6: I mean, the, your average Russian doesn't believe the propaganda that the, the Kremlin puts out, right? But unfortunately the average European, too many of them are actually uh, believing what their governments are putting out. So who's the better at it? Mm-hmm. And given the, the, the control over uh, social media that the Americans have, it, it's a massive tool that they have. I mean, it was actually invented by the military over there anyway uh, for that purpose. But uh, we, we also saw at the outbreak of the war, we saw the mainstream media see this as an opportunity to silence dissent once and for all. Those that don't toe the line, those that challenge the status quo, those that uh, dare to speak up uh, against the mainstream narrative, they had to be silenced and this was our chance to do it. I mean, our names were made muck in Ireland, but you know what? Thankfully, uh, we still believe that the ordinary people uh, will gradually see through this. And uh, not all of them uh, live in the same bubble uh, as the media and Twitter do. And uh, but we would be fairly confident at this stage that I mean the National Endowment for Democracy, they boast about spending money and promoting independent media in all the countries of the world. Well I mean Ireland honestly one of them countries. Uh, so uh, they're one of the countries of the world. So we often ask ourselves, well who's getting the money in Ireland? Um,
2: uh, I'd like to know. You guys, as you say, have been intensely vilified for your views, challenging U.S.-led hegemony. Do you think that's deterred other people in your position from speaking out? Have you spoken to lawmakers in the European Parliament and other bodies in Europe who agree with you but have basically been intimidated into silence?
1: Yeah, I mean, we have and we haven't, right? I mean, I, I think Nick mentioned earlier the European Parliament is incredibly... Unrepresentative of the population of Europe, there is a huge disconnect between the institutions and the people of Europe and some member states the amount of people who vote would be really low, but we definitely had MEPs and, and colleagues coming up to us saying that they wish that they that they agreed with the stance that we took, that they would have voted against the Parliament resolution um, initially, but there was only 13 out of 700 people voted against it, but they were afraid of the backlash at home. Um, so. But that would be a minority. I mean, generally speaking, most of the MEPs are pretty right-wing, they're pretty unrepresentative. Um, but yeah, it definitely, it definitely put people off. I mean, why has the anti-war movement, which is there, not being able to kind of show its face as much there's been some really nice developments uh, of solidarity in italy and in greece workers refusing to handle uh, weapons going to the war but normally that type of stuff and protests would be abc in any war but they've been able to muddy the water on this one and, and make it seem a lot more complicated than a sort of a than would be normal so uh, yeah I mean I suppose the short answer is it has been successful in silencing people it even silenced business as Mick said earlier we were saying to the Germans we can't understand I mean we're socialists but we can't understand how German big business is allowing this madness and this sanctioning taking place and they said because they're afraid because when they tried and they did German business were carrying on doing business with Russia but they were shamed out of it one by one and they even were uh, were uh, circumstances of trade unions and workplace committees being used to come out and say, well, we don't mind. We're prepared to sacrifice our jobs and our hours and our pay if we're supporting colleagues in Ukraine. Now, did you ever? I mean, the question will be, is when they lose their jobs now very soon, are they going to be uh, in the same boat?
6: Yeah, I mean, people should understand the, the nature of the politician as well, right? There's a few different problems the, this animal. Um, first of all, the day he gets elected, he celebrates, and the next day he starts preparing for the next election. So for the majority of them, everything they say and do is geared towards getting re-elected. So a big part of that is staying on the right side of mainstream media. Now, mainstream media has a powerful capacity to decide who actually gets in. And it's one of the reasons that politics all across Europe is, is predominantly dominated by the right wing, despite the fact that not all the people are right wing. Uh, in fact, less than half the people are right wing, but about 90% of the politicians are right wing. So you kind of say to yourself, well, how does that happen? Well, there's a number of reasons. Like, for example, at best, only two-thirds vote. The, the, the one-third that don't vote are generally poor and young. And the poor wouldn't vote for the fellows that most of the people that are getting in because they don't serve their interests. And sadly, the young people are so disillusioned with politics, they think it's waste of time voting because nothing changes. But in actual fact, uh, in Europe, uh, especially in some countries like Ireland, there's a huge young population. And, but in Ireland, four out of five of the under 26 year olds don't vote. And there's, there's hundreds of thousands of them. They can change the structure of the government only they're just not doing it. But then one of the reasons they don't as well is that mainstream media or the government don't encourage them to go actually go out and vote and to actually participate in an active way in politics. It, the whole thing has been dumbed down. And sadly, too many of the people that get in pander to the mainstream media. Now we get hammered by them, but we've never pandered to them. And uh, we've never, ever, we were in the Irish Parliament for eight and a half years and, uh, we worked uh, independent of them, and we don't what we thought was right, and we didn't give a damn whether they liked it or not. But unfortunately, most politicians, like most of the MEPs, that even those that would like to have actually voted different, that would like to be speaking up and saying different in the European Parliament at the moment, they are scared of their life to go to that space because they're afraid that if they do, the mainstream media in their area will make sure they don't get back in. Mm-hmm.
1: That's true. And one of the reasons for the, I suppose, disenchantment that young people have all across Europe is this idea, and we hear all the time that the battle is one of democracy versus authoritarianism, but one of the reasons why people are disenchanted is that this so-called democracy that we live under means people vote Once every five years, people get elected based on lies, they go in, they do the opposite, they don't represent people who voted for them, they don't change people's lives, they just generally speak and feather their own nests and keep neoliberal capitalism in place. So that's why people then are disenfranchised because democracy isn't really having a chance to vote for somebody who will not do what they said they'd do isn't really having control over your life. And it just shows that the limits of this so-called democracy.
6: Yeah, I mean, we've gone out of our way to actually uh, say on a regular basis that democracy is about having a say in how your society, how your community is run, how your country is run. That's not happening. Unfortunately, because of how the system works, uh, the politicians don't feel under pressure to answer to the majority of the people. Like, for example, and I pointed it out uh, in the parliament plenary there a few weeks back, if the pharmaceutical, arms industry, oil and coal uh, decide who gets to uh, become the president of America and where it costs about $2 billion to become president, well, whoever, whatever president gets in, well, he knows who he owes the favours to and he knows who put him there. And uh, it's those people who funded his campaign. They're the ones who put him there. They're the ones he's answerable to. Mm. So is is, uh, is the American president working in the interest of the citizens of America? Absolutely not. So far as I'm concerned, uh, democracy is seriously overrated and and it's pretty uh, thin on the ground at the moment. And I mean, and the way that we love to throw stones at the others, oh, you don't have a democracy. And yeah, I mean, is the Russian system authoritarian? Yeah, it is, yeah. And do we, do we like how it's run? Absolutely not. And uh, it's very possible that uh, Putin robbed the election in 2021 from uh, the communists, right? Uh, we would rather have seen win. But, I mean, the idea that we're doing everything right and, oh, we have, we abide by human rights, or we don't arrest journalists. And Stoltenberg actually said that to me about China. They arrest journalists. And I roared up at him, Julian Assange? Yeah. But he, he pretended not to hear, right? Julian Assange exposed U.S.-NATO war crimes, and he's paying a price for it. He had the audacity to tell the truth. And it says so much about the mainstream media that so few of them are actually able to stand up and speak truthfully about the treatment of Julian Assange. Mm -hmm. So few of them are prepared to put pen to paper and said, this is outrageous, and this is criminal, what they're doing to Julian Assange. So the idea that the West honors the independence of of journalism you know what now you can you can say what you like right (laughs) as long as it suits them but if it doesn't
1: watch out as mick always says democracy is you can say what you like but you'll do what you're told
0: speaking of democracy uh shifting gears a little bit i know claire that you've been you've put forward legislation about abortion what is the status of abortion rights or lack thereof in ireland right now
1: well, actually, it's a yeah, it's it's a, a bit of good news-ish, I suppose, uh, compared to the way things used to be. Um, five years ago, after I suppose decades of struggle, we did manage to, as they call it, repeal the Eighth Amendment, which was a provision put into our constitution to stop abortion in Ireland, allegedly. Um, and it actually arose out of the Roe versus Wade decision, ironically enough, um, when the, even though abortion was outlawed in Ireland at that time under pain of penal servitude for life Um, a number of the sort of Catholic hierarchy and and conservative elements in Irish society got panicked by Roe versus Wade, were afraid that some of the judiciary in Ireland might get a similar notion and allow and then they lobbied basically for a constitutional ban. Uh, where they said there would never, never be abortion in Ireland and of course what that led to was Irish abortions taking place in the UK, in Britain and Irish women having to travel and we even had the appalling hypocrisy of constitutional provisions being voted in over the years where Irish women had a constitutional right to travel for an abortion but not to have one uh, in Ireland which was just total usually what they call an Irish solution to a Irish problem, but in any case, after decades of struggle and, and so on, five years ago, we did succeed in repealing that constitutional amendment and abortion has is available now. It is generally free, safe and legal up to 12 weeks, uh, and without, you know, upon request. Um, now there are some provisions around that that are too detailed to give out about, but it could be a bit better. Um, but it's still a huge leap forward and then other provisions later on for terminations in, in other reasons where a woman's life is in danger and so on uh, in later pregnancy so look at it, it was a, a huge um, step forward uh, one of the few I suppose good stories and, and everybody would have been shocked by uh, the latest developments in the state It's because I mean in fairness the ordinary uh, US citizens and, and the feminist movement had been really supportive of Irish women and our struggle over the years, as they were in the UK and the Netherlands and all the rest of it, raising money, helping uh, people travel and all the rest of it. And I suppose it's that international solidarity is, is what we can offer back now in terms of the latest situation in the States.
6: And just, we were talking about the fact that the young people don't vote in Ireland. Well, on two occasions in the last 20 years, they did vote and the, the referendum on uh, the, the woman's right to choose was one of them. And the other one was the right uh, to gay marriage. And the young people came out for both of those and voted and they made a massive difference to them.
1: And you'd have to ask the question then, well, how did that happen then? That sort yeah. of against the trend that a Catholic conservative country yeah. like Ireland managed to deliver resounding votes, popular votes of the electorate around those two issues. And I think one of the reasons is that it was indicative of people had a vested interest in it, if you like, that for once democracy and voting meant something to people. I mean, people came home in their thousands. They wanted to vote because they knew it would make a difference to their lives, which so often that doesn't happen. And I mean, it's incredible, but what we were able to do was I suppose, take the division out of the debate. You know, What you see now in the States is really polarized uh, climate, which is incredibly unhelpful to discuss issues which are really matters of people's private lives and so on. But we managed in Ireland to have the debate based on science on uh, legal um, input, professional legal and medical advice dictated the conversation around it. And that set the tone uh, and everybody kind of bought into it. And there was a kind of a, an understanding that the politicians wouldn't lead it. Like the same sex marriage both was led by civil society really with most of the political parties were in agreement, but they kept a back role uh, in it, the uh, abortion campaign had broad cross-party support, um, but it came out of, I suppose, years of, I suppose, that this what we used to call the silent majority who never bothered doing anything or speaking up because if you were impacted and yet needed an abortion, you could travel to the UK, okay, it wasn't nice, it was traumatic, it shouldn't have happened, but at least it sorted the problem. So people didn't need to get active, but actually in the latter years with women dying in childbirth, there was a really awful case of a a woman dying, uh, having been denied an abortion. People just said, look, this is ridiculous. Enough is enough. And that silent majority came out on the streets, told their stories and depolarized the situation. They just presented themselves as ordinary people who wanted to love or deal with their health problems. And yeah, that worked.
0: There was that famous awful case about um, the woman who was denied, I guess, an abortion while she was literally miscarrying.
5: The miscarrying 31-year-old was denied a termination in an Irish hospital and later died in agony of blood poisoning. The case has galvanized those in Ireland who say when it comes to deciding between the life of a mother and the life of a fetus, the country's laws are broken. Ireland's strong Catholic tradition means it constitutionally prohibits abortions. But in 1992, the Supreme Court decreed that if a mother's life was being endangered by carrying the baby, termination is permitted. That ruling, though, has never made it into law. Abortion is a constitutional right, as determined by the Supreme Court 20 years ago, under the X case. But there's no legal underpinning of that, there's no legislation to vindicate that right. Uh, Only in certain circumstances, only when the life of the mother is at risk. And that was the determination made 20 years ago. But without legislation, it's a total grey area. And those in the medical fields are unsure as to to what to do. And that's the problem. But for those on the other side of the debates, Ireland already has all the abortion legislation it needs.
3: The clinical guidelines for medical doctors state that they can uh, treat a woman when her life's at risk. And if that means inducing um, the pregnancy, then that is able to happen here already.
5: But the momentum at the moment is with the pro-abortion rights campaigners. Ireland's ruling politicians are under immense pressure to do what six successive governments have avoided doing, finally legislating on the Supreme Court's ruling. just these campaigners urging change either. The European Court of Human Rights has given Ireland until the end of the month to present its proposals for new laws. The death of one 31-year-old woman may well sweep away two decades of deadlock.
1: That's right. That was it. Savisa Halapanavar was her her name. We were in the Irish Parliament at the time and we moved legislation to try and deal with it. But we could never, the legislation could never be enacted because of the constitutional ban. So we had to move to get the constitutional ban removed. And one of the... I suppose, reasons why that was ultimately delivered was, well, in part, it was, you know, pressure from Europe, ironically, but in, in part, it was out of the tragedy of, of Savita Halapanavar's death. Um, and I mean, clearly that's not something we want happening in the States, but it is the case that denying women the right to uh, an abortion does result in death of women, which is just shocking. And I think that sort of woke a lot of people up as well, but. We did manage, and it was great. Like, we were in the Irish Parliament at the time, it was incredible. Um, how well the debate was conducted. It was a lesson in, in, and what the parliament did was, um, we had a committee made up of all of the representatives, all of the political groups, and we had hearings which went on in public where medical and legal experts and women who had terminations and, and people who were against abortion, all came in and gave testimony and it was broadcast and people could ask questions. And there was a citizens convention on those issues as well, which was held in public. And I think if you allowed those issues to be dealt with in a civil, uh, rational, evidence-led way, science-led way, most people are rational and they're going to agree. And unfortunately, what you're seeing in the States now is the opposite of that. It's hysteria, it's emotion, it's polarization, it's the same type of atmosphere that's uh, marshaling the conversation about the war in Europe, which is not helpful to anybody.
2: As we start to wrap, um, you guys are identified as on the left socialists, but you offer a really strong contrast to your contemporaries here in the U.S. uh, who are also identified on the the left as being socialists. You're willing to speak out on issues that progressives here in the U.S. are not. You oppose the proxy war in Ukraine. Progressives here have unanimously voted for it, the $40 billion bill to fund it. You're willing to speak out for Julian Assange, Progressives here can't say his name. You call out the Syria dirty war and the OPCW Syria cover-up scandal. There's no way you can get a progressive here to even touch that issue. Have you had any contact from progressive lawmakers in the U.S.? You know, Bernie Sanders, the Squad, that type, to try to build um, some outreach and some coalition building.
6: No, we haven't heard from them. No,
1: and um, we we doing some work with Progressive International are they they're uk are they yeah, UK, uk or us UK best. they're more you the yeah UK
0: best, yeah no one's yannis yannis is,
1: that's right actually yeah, yeah 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 no you're right no we have we've never but it was with
0: been. bernie was part of bernie was part of it too but i don't think there's a lot of like of the squad active in it yeah
1: well yeah well we've never come across an american uh, u.s politician are we? No, no not really no, no. well um, in fairness we've been impressed by tulsi gabbard in fairness in her her anti-war stuff over the yeah. even when we were in the irish parliament in yeah. fairness to her with, our...
6: with some of her stuff yeah yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah but no we've never had contact from any of them
6: <laughs> but i mean we can see how difficult though yeah. it is in america um, I, mean, I mean from what we can see you don't have any left politics anyway i mean uh, the Democrats are pretty much indistinguishable from the Republicans now, and twice they made sure that Bernie Sanders, who uh, would be kind of seen as just right of centre if he was in Europe, uh, he's no, he would be, no, there's no way he'd be seen as left wing. Uh, but uh, obviously it, it, we would have thought that it would have been a positive move if, the, if he had won the Democratic nomination and uh, we'd have been fairly confident that he'd have become president if he got the nomination, but they pretty well made sure he didn't get it. Mm. And um, it's pretty well wrapped up. Like, I mean, they're, they're, I, I don't see anyone until the people take to the streets um, and is going to continue to live with the system you have. It's going to be very hard for... Um, Any left-wing politics to show his head in America? Hard enough in Europe. (laughs) I mean,
1: first, yeah, Europe isn't. I mean, it would be wrong to think that oh, we're great and Europe's great and all that because we aren't, and it isn't. I mean, like the left in the European Parliament, there's 39 out of 705 members of the European Parliament, and we would say like a good well, 29 of them are definitely not left anyway, or we wouldn't consider them left. And even, you know, all of those left groups, which would be small left groups in, in parties across Europe, and if they contain many very good people, and their voters are really people who are striving for social change, but even they find it difficult uh, as well to speak out and challenge the I system, mean, it's, don't
6: they? I mean, it's, it's a good question to ask this because... I have no doubt there's bound to be good social movements in America that we're not hearing about. I mean, as Claire was saying there, there's some very good things happening around Europe, Mm. but obviously they don't get the coverage of the mainstream media. They're up against uh, serious challenges all the time. I'm sure uh, there's probably something similar in America. Maybe we should uh, reach out and uh, see if we can make contact with some people of, that are like-minded.
1: And it is always what we say. I mean, Mick is always saying that you know politicians don't change things; people do, and we yeah. firmly believe that. Like we, we, you know, Mick thinks it's the biggest insult ever to call someone a po- call himself a politician or or anybody. We we don't really kind of like that. I've always viewed elected positions as just a platform to organize from. It gives you a platform where you can speak out and you can either agitate for people outside who are already struggling and give their struggle a voice, or you can use the platform to try and encourage them. But it really is only the organization of people and ultimately across boundaries that will change things. And maybe for us at the moment, like a lot of what the war reflects is the sort of, the dying influence, in some ways, ironically, of the US and also Europe's waning influence. And the new world is going to be led by people outside that Atlanticist, you know, Europhile, white, you know, English-speaking world is at an end, or French or German or whatever. Do you know what I mean? It's the global south, it's India, China. These are the are the, the big new areas. And maybe out of those new countries coming onto the fore, we'll get something different. I don't know.
6: Yeah, well, I mean, you can understand. You know, some people have probably, have been surprised, probably, that despite uh, terrible criticism and abuse, um, we have uh, we haven't uh, gone quiet. Uh, we've probably got stronger. But we've noticed there's an awful lot of people out there, and uh, that we've made contact with. You know, people want it. People want someone to speak uh, on their behalf, and. Not everybody agrees with, with the, the consensus of the mainstream politicians and mainstream media. And uh, they lack advice and they lack representation. And uh, we have the platform and we have a responsibility uh, to give it socks uh, every chance we have and to speak truth to power.
2: And we appreciate all that you do. Yes, we appreciate you, so you joining much, yeah. us today. Claire Daly-McWallis, thanks so much.
0: Thanks amazing folks. Thanks for having us, thank you. Thanks so much. Hello, thank you so much for listening to and watching Useful Idiots. For full episodes and extended interviews, please subscribe at usefulidiots.substack.com. You can subscribe on YouTube at youtube.com slash usefulidiots for clips, live streams, and full episodes. Also subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at UsefulIdiotPod and use the hashtag UsefulIdiotsPod. Join us Mondays at 10 a.m. for the Useful Idiots Monday morning show where we discuss the Sunday morning news shows so you don't have to watch them.